Hello, and welcome to another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, Daniel Hanley. And joining me on the other line, we followed him all the way down to the docks. He's here with us from the shadows. It's John McMahon. <laughs> Hi, Danielle. Thank you. Um, it was a great trip. I went down to the to the docks, learned some things, hid. There are lots of shadows of various kinds indeed. Found a new agent to run. Yeah. You know. Talked about my budding capitalist uh, enterprisingness. <laughs> I'm, a go- I'm becoming a good capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! What are we? What are we up to today? So we're tracking uh, trips to the ports and more in American season two, episode five, "The Deal," directed by Dan Atias and written by Angelina Burnett. And Daniel, I think you have a summary to read for us. Yeah. So the episode summary from IMDb for season two, episode five of The Americans is that. Philip and Elizabeth are finally assigned a new handler as Philip works to clean up the mess of the last operation and Elizabeth, in disguise as Clark's sister Jennifer, does her best to smooth things over with Martha. As Stan searches for a missing scientist, Oleg and Arkady continue to argue over how best to handle the situation on their side, leaving Nina once again caught between the FBI and the KGB. Once again, indeed, quite the summary. Now, Danielle, it seems like there are multiple deals that are happening in this episode. Maybe that's how we should structure the main discussion today. Yeah, I think it would be helpful for us to sort of some of the different deals one by one. And I think those deals are first Philip and the deals with Yossi and Baklanov. Then we've got Oleg and, and Stan. And then finally, uh, Elizabeth and as Jennifer and Martha. Perfect. Starting with Philip makes sense. This is a very Philip heavy episode. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of time where he is not on his own, but separate from Elizabeth. Yeah. Like he's the one that's primarily in charge of dealing with Yossi, the Mossad agent who had yeah. been shadowing Baklanov and providing protection. And then ultimately Baklanov himself after the handout. So you mentioned that there are some deals that are in play here. Yeah. What are some of those? Well, I think on the, in the first place, we have the deal be- between um, the between Israel and the Soviet Union, right? So, like, how are we – is there going to be a handoff? Are there negotiations? But I think that there's also, like and, – and so on the in the first place, I think, like, we learn that those negotiations or that deal is incredible has incredibly high stakes. And I think for me, you learn about those stakes when Arkady essentially says that he's willing to risk his entire career to make sure that like that like this goes through. Right. And not only this goes through, but it goes through in a way that protects what he understands to be or who he understands to be his agents, right? He, in one of the early scenes of him in the cable room, sadly a different cable operator, unlike our minor character from last season that we celebrated, is the emphasis that he places on even if Moscow is mad at him, he will do what he needs to do to save, in this case, Philip, although Elizabeth is, of course, also implicated as well. And he's right about this because the FBI is a thousand percent onto the situation here. 
Yeah. And I think uh, like that also throughout the episode, we sort of like are reminded of these heightened stakes. There's all mm-hmm. of these flashbacks to uh, all of these flashes from the the safe house back into the FBI office. We see, see Philip consistently looking out the window. They they have an encounter with the cops early on. Like there's all these reminders that like there's so much contingency like and so much that's up in the air that they don't have control over that I think it it just serves to amplify how high the stakes are for like everything that's happening. It is, and there are geopolitical stakes that we find that are attached Absolutely. to this. Not only the matter of okay, so the Soviets give Israel um, their Mossad agent in the U.S. in exchange for them getting back Baklanov, who they would like to forcibly and violently repatriate to the Soviet Union. But the additional terms or conditions that are attached to that are that the Soviet Union has to let 1,500 refuseniks emigrate to Israel. Yeah, which, like, is a hefty number. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, particularly in the midst of the Cold War, and we, we, like, we learn in the episode prior, like, how frustrated people like Philip and Elizabeth are with refusing. And I think we see it in this episode, too. It threads through with some of the, yeah. like, more anti-Semitic comments that Philip makes. Like, how how much betrayal they feel uh, about um, the way in which the refuseniks are sort of, like, refusing, refusing to engage um, with, like, Soviet ideology and whatnot, that, like, again, like, this is a big deal that it's a big deal that Yossi, the Mossad agent, has been caught. It's a big deal that Buklan- that the mission with Baklanov, like, went off the rails. Like, all of these are, are big deals require this tapping into this geopolitical infrastructure that we are not always getting in these episodes. Right. And there is a classic Americans move, though, in which there are the geopolitical deals that are being made that are secondary to the deals that the characters are being asked to consider that they're making in their own lives. And there's something about the status of Yossi as the Mossad agent and Philip that enables more direct access to that than other interactions that Philip has with other characters, maybe with the exception of Elizabeth, in which he is able to talk very honestly and directly about what it means to be a spy, what the difficulties of being a spy are, what the respective values of spies to their respective countries are. Of course, all while he has found this like makeshift abandoned building to hold Yossi and tie him to an oven using like an extension cord as the, as the mechanism, as the ropes. Yeah. And I mean, so the thing that jumps to mind here is, is this line that, that Yossi throws at Philip. And there's a lot of like, it, it felt like Yossi was really like slinging a lot at Philip. Um, and Yossi says like, I hide what I do. I don't hide who I am. And like, that's followed up a little bit later with like, is your face, your face, are your children, your children. And so there's a way in which just as you're like, just as you're saying, like Yossi is able to read Philip. He understands like 
who Philip is and he understands like the challenges of being in such a position because he himself is in something similar. But we hear from Yossi over and over, like I go home for Passover, you know, like that he's not, um, he's not fully alienated from his children. And he's basically accusing Philip of that alienation, which I think we have seen that alienation. All of the stuff with age feels like, like an enactment of that alienation. And you mentioned earlier that there's a way in which Arkady and Philip in particular in their Sovietness like express anti-Semitic comments and sentiments throughout. And there's a way in which Yossi is like reversing the trope of rootlessness here, right? He is the one who is rooted and yeah. returns back for Passover every year. And it's Philip who maybe his face isn't even his face. Maybe his children aren't even his children. And you mentioned, Danielle, this directness that Philip has with Yossi, or more accurately, Yossi has as Philip, which is part genuine quasi-connection in so much as that's possible, also part trying to play Philip to see some moment of opportunity to try to free himself. And there's a way in which in this episode, Yossi becomes a character to whom Philip can slightly open up a little bit or at yeah. least have that kind of open communication with because of the role he plays because of their ability to discuss the deals that they have made, or at least mention the deals they have made for each other or for themselves, I should say, um, while talking with one another. And the only other characters who we really have gotten that with that are not Elizabeth were Leanne and Emmett. So there's a way in which Yossi is kind of structurally and relationally oh, yeah. playing a not totally dissimilar role from the one that Leanne and Emmett played. That's a really interesting point because like there are moments in this episode where it feels like it's possible that Philip is going to soften, which Mm -hmm. we haven't really seen from Philip before. Like usually in, in moments of crisis, like he's the one that he's sort of like the rock or like shuts down, he goes cold, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And like this episode there, there's a softening, there's a melting. And I think you're drawing the parallel between Yossi and Leanne and Emmett is really, really smart because I think, you're right that the only other people that there was even the suggestion of an openness with not having to negotiate, but, but still like being able to connect was with Leanne and Emmett. It's complicated here because there's this, like also this negotiation happening, but there's like, there were moments in this episode where I was like, okay, is Philip going to let him go? Like, is Philip going to kill him? Like the questions hung over this episode and over the dealings with Yossi in ways that they hadn't for me before. That's a very effective way to put it because it also, it actually brings us back to the kind of geopolitical stakes as well. Mm-hmm. It It is as if in this moment in which the geopolitical deals take over is what frees Philip and Yossi to have this conversation in a more direct way and to confront some of these things more directly. Because in this one instance, things are so much out of their hands. It's based on this negotiation that's happening between the Soviet Union and Israel. And maybe kind of a place to temporarily close our discussion of Yossi, because we're coming back to him later, is... The question he poses to Philip about what or where is home for Philip or perhaps for a spy in general. Yeah. And I think like, again, we get that Yossi poses this question, but has such a firm answer for himself. Like 
I I think my my favorite line of this episode is like, "What are you, the Kenny Rogers of Tel Aviv?" And Yossi's like, "Haifa," um, <laughs> <laughs> which like as someone who lived in Israel for a long time, I just like felt like was very funny and and like also makes a lot of sense. Even jokes aside, like we consistently get from Yossi, like he knows where his home is. He knows like he, he also is like very well aware of the stakes of his mission in ways that I think Philip and, and for me a little bit more Elizabeth, like have, we just learned that they sort of forgot that like death is actually a thing that could come to them. Right. Mm -hmm. And Yossi's like, okay, you're going to kill me. Right. So like, not only does Yossi know where home is and he knows like what home means to him and who he is and who his kids are, et cetera, et cetera. Like his connection to Judaism, all of it. But also like he knows that like what he is doing puts all that at risk in a way that I think Philip does not, which is a wild thing to say. It is a wild thing to say, and I think is tied to a line that you pointed out earlier that for Yossi, who he is and what he does are not the same, Yeah, but primarily because of the role in which Philip and Elizabeth have been placed in, Yeah, right? Home can't be Smolensk with the icicles, <laughs> right? As, or no, Smolensk is where, is where Elizabeth is from, excuse me. Home can't be the Soviet Union for Philip. Home has to be this life with Elizabeth and the kids here in Falls Church, but that would require the conflation of who Philip is and what he does to turn Falls Church, Virginia into home. And for Yossi, he doesn't have to do that or has actively tried to refuse doing that. Which I think, and I could be getting this wrong, but like, come with me on this journey. (laughs) I can't wait. (laughs) I think that that's consistent with the communist ideology, right? The sort of like the collapsing of like of the who and the what, at least in the way that it gets articulated through the Soviet Union um, in a way that is just like not the case for the Mossad, right? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm, maybe I'm like, maybe that's a gross generalization. Maybe, but you know, who's on your side in this is our boy Arkady, right? Because Arkady has this line about how, you know, so the, the Russians or the Soviets, I forget what he says exactly, will die for principles Mm -hmm. and Jews will die for their people. Yeah. And I think that that distinction that Arkady recognizes, which of course is like tinged, but that observation that he makes is very connected to your observation here. Yeah, I think that that's right. And I have forgotten about that line, but I think that you're absolutely right that like the, I, yeah, I think the thing I'm, I'm, I'm after is like they, for like for Philip and Elizabeth, the collapsing of home, the collapsing of like the who and the what, the collapsing of home and work, like though you have to live your principles, right? Like the anti-Semitism is also an articulation of that. You have to live your principles. You're like living for your people, not for your principles. Like that's the the divide here. And for Yossi, the Mossad is not about, it's not like principles don't exist in the absence of people, of a people, right? Like a demos. This sounds like we've entered the cave inadvertently. Question mark. <laughs> so, this line about the about the principles that are and are not 
subtending what is happening with these characters and with the people, the peoples or organizations they are a part of. Yeah. That is a very cave political theory word I, I recognize. I saw Danielle's face when I said that word. Like, I can't believe he just fucking said it's that. It's one of those words that I always have to look up. <laughs> Do, could I give you a definition? Like, as in a dictionary? Hell no. When am I going to oh, use it when I'm, like, writing for whatever journal I'm writing for? Absolutely. Like subtend and imbricate are both words where I'm like, Okay, imbricate I think I could maybe define. Not that I'm going to volunteer to do so right now. But subtend, yeah, something like that. Uh, subtend is probably in our piece that we're working on revising right now. It absolutely is. That's the last <laughs> time I looked it up was when I reread it. <laughs> All right, so we have the principles question yeah. that is raised by Danielle, the political theorist, and Arkady, the KGB resident. Talk about collapsing home and work. <laughs> <laughs> episode I read John. Now I'm reading myself. There we go. Um, I said it also applies to me, so it's, it's still also uh, indirectly. I've been dragged. If Yossi is perhaps, or are Yossi and Arkady are offering this vision of principles in relation to Philip, it's Baklanov who is extremely insistent that there are no principles left for Philip yeah. beyond simply whatever he is told to do by his spy masters by the center, by the KGB, by the Soviet Union, right? Because so yeah. Yossi is given back to the Mossad after being captured by Philip and Elizabeth. Yossi a cabacero? <laughs> yeah, we've, anyway. got, we've got more to say about Yossi. We'll get there. Um, so Baklanov then goes on a very long car ride to the docks with Philip. And Baklanov, who understands the possibilities of what is happening to him, he knows he is either about to be killed or is going to be sent back to the Soviet Union and essentially turned into a forced labor scientist for the USSR. Yeah. And so he makes many accusations towards Phillips that are of a different character than the ones that UFC made, right? So for Bakalov, it's, you're a monster, you're not a man, they train the humanity out of you, you may as well be dead. The utter lack of morality that Bakalov understands Philip to have, that has, according to Bakalov, been sacrificed for this cause of the Soviet Union, on the one hand does, and this is going to both end, of course, on the one hand... It is the most extreme iteration of the we'll die for the principles. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, it's Bokhanov saying there are not even any principles there to make that sacrifice to. Yeah. I mean, and that's like when he calls Philip Eichmann, right? Like yeah. we get this Eichmann reference and it's like it's calling out both the you're willing to die for the cause and you have lost the thread of what the cause, like the morality or lack of morality in the cause, right? If we want to think about like this question of deals and Baklanov, one, Baklanov is like given up in this, in this trade. This is what, where the negotiations lead us. But I think Baklanov is also highlighting the fact that like in, in calling out Philip for like training the humanity out of you and all of this, He's essentially saying, like, you've made your deal with the devil, right? Like, that's, like, that's the only deal that's left here. And, like, and 
you know, I wrote my dissertation on crying and I was like, why didn't I watch this episode before I wrote that dissertation? (laughs) Because you get this, like, he's just, he's like wailing in the back of the car. And again, to come back to, I think this is a parallel between Philip's interaction with Yossi and his interaction with Baklanov, right? Is that we get this, there are moments in that car ride where it's like, is he going to like engage in a sort of set of negotiations is perhaps the end goal here to not necessarily to repatriate him, but to like turn him in America. Is there a chance for him to go to his son's bar mitzvah? Like the emotional appeals that are happening less about the crying and more just about the, like Yossi has softened him and now like, maybe these comments are hitting home and maybe we're going to see a little bit of a, a shift here. Like, again, those questions hang over and Philip is just like, ultimately doesn't engage in those negotiations with Vaklanov. He does. He barely says anything. Correct. But like, they're on the table there. They're on the table. And Philip is, we get a classic Matthew Reese, sad Philip series oh of performances in this episode mm-hmm. in the car at the moment of bringing Baklanov to the boat, as he's walking away from the boat where he has given Baklanov to go on a very fucking long sea journey to the Soviet Union from the like Baltimore, Virginia area. It is not 1942. Like, put this motherfucker on a plane. <laughs> like, they, would been, they would not have been able to smuggle him out on a plane, though, right? I know, but it's just like, it just made it... I, maybe for what it was for me is like, it just lengthens the amount of time. And I really thought that that last scene that we get with Baklanov yeah. where he's like gazing out the, to, like out to the night sea. I was like, is this and man? And sees go- the moon over the ocean, right? Yeah. I was like, is this man going to choke himself with the, like with the amount of chain that's there? Like that was my, that was my thought because that's like, that's where we left him in the car, you know? Absolutely. There's right after, I feel if it's, no, this is, I think, before that. It's at the end of bringing Baklanov to the boat. Yeah. Where there's this shot as Philip is walking away where it's incredibly zoomed out. So you see this gigantic ship and, like, Philip is, like, this tiny speck that is walking mm-hmm. away. And there's something there that's working in relation to the accusations Baklanov makes to Philip of, Philip is just this like cog in this giant machine. He, there's this, you know, huge overseeing force that is deciding his every move. And here Philip is literally like the size of one, you know, a hundred thousandth of, of this ship. Well, and I would say that even we even get a little bit of that in the exchange between, yeah. of Yossi and Baklanov in that like cavernous parking garage, right? <laughs> I yeah, parking garage, but like parking garage, like just like very cavernous and like also not as the perspective was not as jarring as what you're describing. But I think like all of that imagery is reminding us that like the stakes are much larger. There's way more in play here than just these two like dudes. Yeah, yeah, the greater forces are made visually representable or visually legible. Danielle's just like caught a mosquito, uh, like on, on air. I'm really impressed. 
<laughs> with her bare hands. Um, where, oh, what, God. what spy school did you learn that at? Is the is the question? Don't, All right, we, we know that we're both going to be we're bad spies. Both <laughs> bad spies. We're and they're not going to trade for us either. We're not valuable. Absolutely enough. not. <laughs> All right. So the, the the doc scenes are not only about our friends Philip and Anton Bukhanov, but also we get a doc scene with. Oleg and Stan. So the, you know, we have not seen these characters together right. uh, before. And of course they couldn't have been together. And the fact that they show brings them together is notable, even on its own terms for this particular scene. So Oleg distracts Stan and Gad and like the team. They think that Oleg is about to lead them to wherever they're going to try to smuggle Bakanov out of. Yeah. And Oleg, who had told Arkady after after being just a huge dick, he told Arkady that, don't worry, I have training in counter surveillance. And so he reads off to Stan, you were this car, I led you here. I also saw this car and this car and yeah, this yeah, car yeah. over this long drive. And joke's on you, it's just me here. I actually was leading you away from the real sight of Bukhana being smuggled out. So after pulling like a fast one on Oleg, which clearly has shaken Stan up a little bit. Which like good on Oleg for, for like, like distracting Stan because there was part of me when this like whole thing started, I was like, Oh God, like he is going to lead them there. And then like quickly I was like, okay, it's not going to happen. It's fine. But like, Oleg is stupid enough to, or like his hyper masculinity, able to be activated enough to like do the wrong thing, but at least he didn't. Yes. And so Oleg is then, that's a great point because the show has, the way the show has depicted Oleg up to this point is that he would be the overly aggressive doofus asshole who fucked everything up for everybody. And in fact, like he gets a different side of him revealed in this episode. And it's like the best acting that the show has that Costa Ronan be able to do as Oleg to this point. I think that that's right. So then what, Daniel, is the deal that Oleg offers to Stan? The deal? So the deal that Oleg offers to Stan is that like he's going to, you know, like he's going to tell him what's up with Nina, right? But the way that I read it is that this is Oleg now, like, manipulating Stan into... He's now running Stan as well. Or he he would like to. He would like to leverage this into running Stan. Yeah, but I also think that, like... And this is a... Is Stan bad at his job question? (laughs) Because I think, like, he would like to run Stan, but I think... Even by duping Stan into being at this meeting is a mark of him being able to run Stan. Whether Stan's going to agree to the like cognizant version of that or is simply going to be manipulated into it, I think is the is the deal he offers Stan. Yeah. That's, I think, half of the deal he offers Stan. Yeah. So the other half, and this is a question I'm going to throw back to you with, of course, a long preamble before the question comes, is Oleg, our budding student of capitalism, as he tells as he tells Stan, who recognizes that at least in America, everything has value, everything can be traded. Yeah. As we even learned with something as banal as the hockey tickets, and now it's like 
hockey tickets, Nina Sergeyevna, eh, you know. Uh, <laughs> Look at me, the negotiator. <laughs> Capitalism is about negotiation. Yeah. Okay. So I think, though, the question that particularly a first-time viewer, I, I suspect, is considering about this mm-hmm. is to what extent do you think Oleg understands himself to be both advancing his position, stature, goals, objectives within the KGB, and also providing some additional layer of protection to Nina as opposed to a more purely self-interested thing. Like, do you think that Oleg is doing, to what extent do you think Oleg is doing this out of advancing in the KGB compared to thinking he is adding some of this protection for his crush slash friend, unrequited crush slash Unrequited friend, Nina. (laughs) Unrequited friend is like quite correct. Yeah, I actually think that that's a great question. And one that I think depending on like the mood in which I'm watching it, the Mm. answer shifts because the first, I watched this episode twice. The first time I watched the episode, I was like, oh, this is only for his pure, this is like him leveraging Nina for his own advancement but like there is and and I'm sort of reading that both out of the interaction with Stan but also his interaction with Nina which is like pretty aggressive for him because until this point like he's been aggressive with Nina but never threatening to her and this felt like it bordered on threatening But I do think, like, the question you're asking, like, I think there's a little bit that that thinks there's a way that maybe, like, he comes out as uh, the hero or, like, it both advances him and also, like, protects Nina a little bit, whether it be protecting her against, like, the center or Arcadi or Stan. It's unclear to me who he thinks the like biggest big bad is within the Nina situation. I would fully agree with that. And part of the reason that I think he's not sure or that we as an audience can read him as, un- as unsure mm-hmm. is because of that conversation that he has with Nina, yeah. where he clearly understands that there is more to Nina's story vis-a-vis Stan than meets the eye. Yeah. Right. He says as much. He says as much. And then also there's things that he still doesn't understand about what's happening. Yeah. And so I think that kind of leaves some wiggle room into what his center, what his you know interpretation of the situation is. But your point about if he's able to both be Nina's, if he's able to white knight Nina and yeah. also advance himself, that's probably the ideal scenario in his mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we can't quite get at like what the breakdown is yet. Yeah, and you'll notice I I asked that as a as a first time viewer. Yeah, How yeah. Are you reading that situation because obviously <laughs> I, I I know what's coming with with our friend Oleg. Yeah, I'm, I I will say that it definitely made me more interested one in the Oleg Nina um relationship, but also the Oleg Arcadi relationship. I think Oleg is a character, right? Who's he's no longer a one note jerk as he totally. has been up until the final ten minutes of this episode. Totally. He's like much, I think like he's smarter than I was giving him credit for. I thought he was just a, like a, you know, a climber. He just wanted to like advance. And I don't think that that fully captures who Oleg is for me anymore. 
Do you want to hear one of my, like, grand theories of the Americans? Is it going to ruin stuff for me? No. Have at it. That Oleg is perhaps, like, an allegory for Gorbachev. Oh, I like that. So I just want to throw that out there. If I gave a lot more to it, I probably yeah. would, it would start to ruin things. But I yeah, just yeah, want yeah. to throw that out there as uh, planting that, that theory. Okay. I will, we will that's, come back That's that. John Stassier. That's what I have. John Stassier is like meta theories about <laughs> everything. Exactly. <laughs> Danielle Stassier is just conspiracy theories. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, okay, so we've thought about the deals with Philip and Yossi and Baklanov. We've thought about the Oleg Stam situation. I think like now I want to shift us to thinking about the, what I think is a negotiation between Elizabeth as Jennifer and Martha. Um, and in sort of thinking about this as another kind of another relationship at, at which the center is a deal. I think the negotiation here is that Elizabeth has a thing that she needs to happen, right? She has like a specific mission, that, which is to make sure that Martha doesn't make good on her threats from the last episode. <laughs> to put Clark's name on an FBI employment application or transfer or whatever. Which I still maintain. I said this last time in the dossier, like I maintain that this is the beginning of the end for Martha. I'm not looking at your face. I don't, I know that you're not doing anything with your face, but I'm just saying like, this is the beginning of the end. Um, but Elizabeth is negotiating here because she is trying to persuade without the sort of, uh, muscles of persuasion that she is usually mm -hmm. using mm -hmm. Martha into, um, not putting the name. So she's trying to coax Martha into taking the, the path that she as like Jennifer and Elizabeth needs for her to take. And does so to your point that she doesn't have her usual methods of beat up, commit violence or threaten yeah. violence against someone Shoot. by making sure that Martha gets fucking wasted on the white wine. Oh, point A. Okay. <laughs> point B of this strategy is to nag and shit talk Clark as much as she possibly can and volunteer that information and let Martha like let out these feelings against Clark. Yeah. I mean, ultimately what she's doing is she's like engaging in a relationship of solidarity with Martha mm. in order to like push towards her particular goal, which Martha is unaware of. Correct. Would you say it's an affective solidarity that they forge? I would say it's an affective <laughs> solidarity, which is frustrating for my own research. <laughs> that is frustrating. But I just want to like point out that, you know, there's all this is happening. It's a kind of negotiation, right? Elizabeth is totally. like, I will give up saying all of these things about Clark and in return, yeah. you're not going to put this for, you know, put his name on yep. this form. And in the course of doing so, there are some of the funniest moments of this episode oh and some of like the most amusing acting of the episode. Allison Wright, doing drunk acting Martha is oh really, God. really good. Like it's, it's over the top, but Martha, the character would be an over the top. A hundred percent. So I, it's, so it worked for me totally. It's so spot on. It's like, it's 
completely consistent with what I would have expected a drunk Martha to be. And also like a let's commiserate, but also I like the other part of, of this is like all the sex talk, which made me deeply uncomfortable. But again, like just as Martha over the top, over the top Martha as, as drunk Martha is consistent. I think Martha, like, being so excited to talk to someone, anyone, someone who knows Clark about like sex god Clark is yeah. like also consistent. It's also just hilarious as a viewer to have this in which <laughs> Martha thinks she's, you know, disclosing sex god Clark to sex god Clark's sister, when in fact she's disclosing disclosing the Clark as a sex god to Philip slash Clark's spouse. It's just like a mind fuck. But the key point is that Elizabeth seems to give these faces, which are, what? This not this is not the Philip that I know, right? This is, and that works for her as part of the ruse she's it's carrying out yeah. against, against Martha. But of course, for Elizabeth herself, it's actually a totally different reaction yeah. of wonder, wondering about what the sex god you know, where the sex god has been all along, even though her and Philip have a really strong sex life together. But I... Strong, but fucked up sex life. Yeah, but, like, regardless of the, like, strong and fucked up, it's also new, right? Like, the their sex life starts with the beginning of this series. And so, like, arguably, they're still getting to know each other, like, in the erotic sense. Yeah. And so, like... In the sack, as Martha would say. Oh boy. I just want to highlight some Martha lines from the scene, it. if we may. Go there's for it. there's the way she says in the sack. There's the way <laughs> she says he's an animal over and over again. Over and over. Yeah. Too many times. Too many times. This I can is his sister. <laughs> yes. There's the way in which she does like fuss, fuss, fussy as <laughs> describing Clark as a setup to he's an animal in the sack. Oh my God. And like, that was really amusing to me. And then there's like, this kind of sad line or poignant line, maybe where mm-hmm. she says, it's not like lying on this form is going to get me sent to prison. And I was like, oh, and here we are confronted with stakes. <laughs> uh, even in this sort of like sillier exchange, like the the stakes loom large. And this is like, you know, this, this uh, interaction between Elizabeth and Martha is like tangential to the plot. But also it's like, it's the whole thing, right? That the, the jig could be up at any minute, which again, like to come back to the, the exchange between Yossi and Philip, like the idea of home, the idea of who, like, who are you? Do you, are, are your children, your children is your face, your face with the mere like bureaucratic entry your whole life could be fucked. Correct. Which I think, like, connects all of it. Indeed. The way the episode tries to connect all of it at the very end is a very kind of touching and sweet scene between Elizabeth and Philip, who have been mostly separated for the entirety of the episode. Mm -hmm. And after Philip has finally succeeded at this clearly emotionally and physically draining, they're like eating shitty peanut butter sandwiches with Wonder Bread and one canteen of water for both of them for like 24 hours. 
and emotionally draining as well, he comes back and they like cuddle on the couch in a very sweet and intimate way. Yeah, it's very sweet. And like, I was, I was joking around earlier about Chekhov's icicles, but like, then we get this conversation between the two of them about like their former home. Where there are icicles in Smolensk. Which is like a very, like you said, a very sweet way of this, of this coming together. And I think like the way that I was reading that scene against the rest of the episode is like, at the end of the day, this is all that there is, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there are all these stakes, geopolitical, like, interpersonal, uh, the Martha of it all, the Yossi, Baklanov, Oleg, Stan. But at the end of the day, it's just, like, the upshot of all of these deals is that it comes back to the relationship that Philip and Elizabeth are building slash have built. And, like, the times in this series where that is on shaky ground is when it feels like all of it's about to fall apart. And there was something kind of like comforting or peaceful about that sort of final embrace here. Not as a, not as a period at the end of a sentence, but just like as a, like a a semicolon, a pause, a breath, you know? Right. Because that semicolon or pause is also filled with the foreboding of the preceding 50 minutes. Exactly. The entirety of which are like, okay, what are the deals you made? And none of this is actually real. Right. And so there's, and so the contrast of that being the entirety of the episode and then that moment of intimacy at the end is I think really stark in a way that, you know, with the exception of perhaps the pilot, there hasn't necessarily been quite the same darkness of that of that, um, that relationship. Yeah. And I think it also tells us sort of where we are in the Philip Elizabeth relationship. We're sort of back to this more, this, this stronger or like more solid place that that's what we could come back to in this episode. Which is interrupted and is always doomed to be interrupted, right? The kid's alarm goes off and Paige is like, where is, where is this blouse? Right. Mom, where is this blouse? (laughs) They're just like, nope, we're staying in this moment. Yeah. We've got 10 more seconds before Paige gets downstairs and enjoy it. We have more than 10 seconds left on Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. It's time to go to the segments. We have a bit of a new order for the segments. We're going to dig into Danielle Dossier as a way to transition out of the main discussion and into some of the, I would say, like, more fun stuff we've got going on here. So Danielle Dossier, first, like, Thank God Claudia's gone. We get Kate the new handler. <laughs> I knew I, that would be Danielle's favorite aspect of this episode. 100%. Is that, is that Claudia is pieced out, for at least for now. One million percent. However, I this new handler does not seem like she can hang. Like, I, <laughs> like whatever you need. I'm like, no, 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 no. The handler needs to, like, there needs to be a bit of tough love. Claudia took the tough love to, like, I would say an egregious extreme. (laughs) See the episode where she literally tortures Philip and Elizabeth. But like this one just felt like a little too doe eyed. So either like she's a silent assassin or she's out in like two episodes. (laughs) I can't say anything more about that particular note. I will say that Kate as the handler is, just so much the opposite of Claudia in her affect and the styles you just mentioned, right. In terms of like her appearance, right. She's young. She's kind of normatively attractive. 
right? And Claudia is older, right? She gets called granny in a very derisive manner. So yeah. there's so many ways when she's the, the opposite, including the, I just want you happy. Tell me what you need, right? To your point as well. So Kate, Claudia's replacement is here. She's here. We're going to, I'm sure we'll come back to her in the dossier later. I mean, I said this a little bit earlier, but like, where do the kids think Philip is? He's just been gone for, 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 for like over 24 hours. I'm sure he smells very, very bad. Travel you know, agent convention. Last minute travel Asian emergency. When my dad, like, <laughs> so my dad is a carpenter and like when we were younger, he like consistently worked in the city, like on jobs. And so like there'd be times where he was like working overtime and my mom would always be like, dad's working late. We don't even get, Elizabeth doesn't even say that to the kids. Like we don't even get that interaction, which just like hammers home the point of like, do, who, do your kids even know who you are? No, of course they do not. And also, how did Elizabeth do all of this, get down to Norfolk to see, check in with Brad, get the file, see Martha, and be back to be like, let me interrogate Paige some more? Well, I think that this is happening over two days. That's true. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. It's happening over a night and then the subsequent day and yeah. the subsequent night in which the handoff actually Exactly. Happens. And I only know this because, like, Stan is, like, in the car, out of the car, home, not home. Like, Gad is, like, like having this meeting with the DOD and not having his meeting with the DOD. And so sure. there's just, like, it's it seems like 36 hours here. Yeah. Where do so the I, kids think Philip is, though? Legitimate question. Um, the last thing in Daniel's dossier, and this is just a silly one, is they just kept talking about icicles in this episode. And I was like, in my notes, I have Chekhov's icicles. I was like, is, I don't know. Is Yossi going to like kill Philip with an icicle? Like what's, what's going to happen here? And well, then Philip does say that we had sword fights with icicles as a kid. It's true. That is, that is what he says to Elizabeth later. But I was like, is this, are we, is this the gun on the wall? Like what's happening? And then it's just like an exchange that Philip and Elizabeth have. And it's very sweet. But I was like the whole episode, I'm like, all right, well, this is the perfect murder weapon. So (laughs) (laughs) let's get, let's get after it. Well, there's a lot of things in the Americans that appear to be temporarily, but not fully Chekhov's whatever's. And a lot of them do come back and those guns on the walls do get off, do get used and yeah. go off. So I can't tell you whether icicles are, or are not one of those things. They're at least not one of those things in this episode. True. 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 Let's dig into gloss. Let us do that. I would say more random things to, to get after in gloss. Um, the first one that I would like to bring up is just like Elizabeth's brief or final meeting with Brad. Like, just made me sad. Yeah. Uh, she gets what she needs, which, yes. like, of course she does. Of course. I just, I felt sad that he was like, I'm never going to see you again. And I was like, oh, but you still did this thing. Right. Cause, really. Because presumably Brad knew. Or had that fear at least before that meeting. And he was so excited. I know. To give Elizabeth that file on later. Yeah. I know that he like did the thing that she asked for him. Exactly. Which in his mind was like the thing that he needed to do so that Elizabeth could get over this barrier of the story she tells him about being sexually assaulted. Yeah. 
Yeah, which, like, again, it's just, like, there's a lot of sad things in this episode, and this was another sad thing. Yeah, and we get Elizabeth as part of this season's responding to the aftermath of the end of season one and aftermath of Leanne and Emmett's death and aftermath of what Claudia told her about herself, that there's this mixture of what Elizabeth says to Brad. First, I don't have anything to give to you, which is actually true. But then... I wish I did, which is, of course, a lie, right? She's very fine just, like, using him to get the file and moving on and never forgetting. So where Elizabeth as a character, as a person is at in this mission is confused a little bit, or at least the conflicts are brought to the surface, even as she definitively ends this temporary connection with Brad. Yeah, and also, for me, like, thinking about this as the end of the engagement with Claudia, at least for the time being, right? Like, that this is figured that out. I don't know. Maybe it's a little bit more open-ended, but... No comment. Okay. (laughs) A little dossier slipping in there. Yep. So we get not only Elizabeth's brief meeting with Brad, we get a very two strange brief conversations between her and Paige. How did you respond to those, Danielle? Well, I was like, you better not be reading the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) No, but, but I, the, the exchange with Paige where, and this is in the first one, I don't want you hiding things is what Elizabeth says to her. And I just was really struck by the irony of that, which is like, I, and we've talked about this a bit before, like, I don't want you hiding things is literally the name of Elizabeth's game. And so like, again, that's sort of like, to what extent is Paige internalizing her, the, the, the real, her lived reality, right? Um, even if she's not fully conscious of like the hiding things. Yeah. And then the second version of the conversation that we get where again, once you know, once again, I should say Elizabeth is down in the basement, like doing some spy stuff. And Paige is like, I need to go down to the basement and see what is happening, but also try to make this genuine emotional expression to her yeah. mom. And she doesn't quite have the language to do that. She's trying to express what it is about church or about this youth group that's appealing to her. She gives a, it's not you, it's me. I have this, it's my crazy life. I kind of don't know where to put everything. Which, of course, is true. And actually, Paige has no idea how true that is. And so I think it's really smart what the show did to have her not be able to articulate the emotional or psychic currents or the emotional and psychic currents vis-a-vis her parents that yeah. are leading her to go seek God or go seek community in the youth group. And I'd also like to point out that I think we did a good job last episode discussing some of these things that Paige then herself implicitly yeah. communicates in this episode. That's exactly what I was thinking. The sort of like the... And I think that this goes to some of the stuff we were talking about in our main discussion, this idea of home or grounding or an anchor, like that's the thing that Paige is searching for. She's finding it in a place that Elizabeth finds so like reprehensible. Exactly. And that, that's sort of, it's fascinating. And I'm sure there's some like psychoanalysis we could engage in there, but. Because Paige knows this is reprehensible and yet it's also the thing that is most appealing to her. Absolutely. Or the place that is most appealing to her. And of course, then the question is, 
is the fact that it's reprehensible to Elizabeth. Seemingly, Paige feels some conflict about that, but yeah. it's probably a feature more than it is a bug, right? I think that that's right. From her so, sub- unconscious perspective. Yeah, exactly. So I want to clear out some time here for you to dig into Arcadi Corner. Arcadi Corner. Our guy Arcadi. There's so much Arcadi in this episode that is that is that we love, right? Is that that is great. This what, is what was like your what was like your favorite Arcadi line from oh my God. the deal? I love that he's like willing to go to bat for his agents. I love that he's like willing to risk himself. But the, the I think the my favorite line of the whole episode was when he's like. They are, we are better at vodka. They are better at cigarettes. Right. He's so pissed that the cable operator, right, sending the, the secret message back to Moscow yeah. has Soviet cigarettes when his, which I, which I think were Marlboro's. I think they were Marlboro's. Um, yeah. His pack is empty and he's like, well, do you smoke? And he's, of course, like it's a Soviet guy in the 80s. He's smoking, obviously. But like the disgust that Arkady has that it yeah. is a Soviet brand of cigs is. Oh my God. Miraculous. In that same conversation, Oleg barges in as they're sending oh. the secret cable back to Moscow back to Moscow. And in the same conversation where Arkady disses Soviet cigarettes, we have Oleg barging in. Not respecting the closed Respect door. The closed door. Especially when you know Arkady is on the other side. And Arkady reads Oleg the riot act, wow. including is Reagan scaling the walls of the embassy in his <laughs> cowboy hat, which was my favorite line of this episode. Honestly, like a gem of a line of a picture painted, like, and in the midst, it's, it like comes so naturally out of Arcadi's mouth in the midst of this like rage vomit at Oleg. Rage, vomit, and he's so worried about Philip and Elizabeth and about whether there's going to possibly be a deal, and yet he still has the peace of mind to be like, I can take a 10-second break from communicating with Moskva to rip on Oleg that is also ripping on Reagan. Exactly. True icon. uh, An icon to legend. Yeah. Yeah. Some less less legendary Arcadi moments as well in Arcadi Arcadi (laughs) Corner. He's, like, pretty down on the Jewish people on Israel. We get uh, Philip's got some anti-Semitism. Arkady's got some anti-Semitism, too. It's consistent. It's disappointing. He should have just, like, stopped at the Reagan joke. <laughs> and the and then the, perhaps the final Arkady corner moment, which is tied to this, is it's the end of the episode. He's kicked back. Interestingly, not with vodka. This is like the second or third time that yeah. we've seen this, but he's got like fancy ass scotch or whiskey yeah, yeah, or something yeah. going on. Um, you know, with on the rocks, um, which is also a little bit surprising to me, but whatever. And he sees the news of the Soviets allowing 1,500 refuseniks to leave. Yeah. And he understands that that was part of the deal that was made. And he's yeah. like, damn it, those people got us again or something. He yeah. like both respects the game and is also pissed. Yeah, he he knows that he's been had, but also he was, like, preparing for it. Not this particular version mm-hmm. of it, which I think probably, like, gets under his skin more than it would have otherwise. Yeah. So it's not Arcadi-specific, but one other gloss note, I think, for this episode is actual glass. Oh, look at that. Oh. <laughs> look at that. Oh. <laughs> I nice. did not plan that, I would like to point out. Did not I plan that. Happened in the moment. Stroke of brilliance. Reaction on air. There's... <laughs> 
there's <laughs> the conversation that Oleg and Nina have. And in the background is like this beautiful, incredible stained glass lemon depiction that is just so cool to look at. I would like it in my house. Um, it'd be wonderful. Maybe I can talk to my institution and see if they'll put some lemon stained glass in like the little windows in my office. Yeah, that'll work. I feel very into that. For you. <laughs> that feels like a great trajectory. Yeah, great decision. Great yeah. decision. Let's appropriate some public funds to give me a Lennon stained glass window. One million percent. It's just really, really cool looking. Obviously, it's yeah. keeping up with the general aesthetics yeah. of the Residentura. And we get other parts of it. We get this like gigantic concrete door that is their equivalent of like the safe room in the FBI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get the claustrophobia of the cable room, which really only two, maybe three people could fit in yeah. as we see when Oleg tries to barge in. But best part of design and decor in the resident tour this week is absolutely the stained gloss window. 100%. And I <laughs> Again. Um, all right, let's get into some borrowed nostalgia for the unremembered eighties. Still don't know what it means. You know, Danielle, we've got a guest coming on and we think it's going to be two weeks who I believe is our best chance yet to know the, to reveal to you the reference. Amazing. I have faith in her. I I really do. I do too. It's probably also time to maybe end this bit of you not knowing. So it also (laughs) might be helpful if she can do that for us. Amazing. Okay, so first thing in Borrowed Nostalgia, which is another one of my favorite lines of this episode. What are you, the Kenny Rogers of Tel Aviv? Just like the Kenny Rogers of it all? Yeah. And like the the drunken song that we have all sang outside of a bar? <laughs> I have never actually sung The Gambler, except for imitating them singing it in this episode. I would like to insist. I'm pretty sure that like, you know, we love like a trip down Danielle's memory lane. Obviously. I, the fall semester of my, of my junior year, I spent in Washington, D.C. in like a Cornell and Washington program. And we, none of us, except for one of our friends was 21, but there was this bar around the corner that had karaoke on Monday nights and you didn't have to be 21 okay. to get in, but they like carted for you to have to drink. Yeah, but we, a wristband or whatever. Yeah. We found a room that had a working tap of beer and for months, we would, like, get cups of beer from this room in this bar in D.C. in DuPont Circle. The bar doesn't exist anymore. I definitely have a memory of being on stage after the room beer um, singing this song. I, I wish I could have been there. <laughs> next, next visit to Troy, New York, we'll have to figure out a way to make Ooh. it happen. Yeah. Listen, I love karaoke, so I will drag you to karaoke, and I'll just do all the singing. I will. I'll I'll go to karaoke. Like I'm a terrible singer, I wouldn't be able to say on key or in the correct pitch or anything. But like, I'll get up there and and sing. I've been known to do some no doubt karaoke. Amazing spiderwebs, love spiderwebs, girl. Yeah, exactly. Um, I've got some other other ones. Will there be some Harry Styles karaoke? Quite possibly. Only we wet can leg. like we can do a wet leg care styles mashup karaoke. I'm sure everybody would love that. Amazing. So Kenny Rogers, Kenny Rogers of Tel Aviv, the gambler, extremely 80s, and also just both the 
character of Yusi and then Philip making fun of Yusi's pronunciation. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just like that. That's how he figures out yes. that Yosi is no, Mossad, which is, them. which is also nice, which is like such a good, like window into Philip's character. Like he's always on, right? Yeah. Like he picked it even, up immediately. Even that moment of like, Oh my God, are we going to get like caught by the cops? Da, da, da. Like yeah. he was, he knew exactly what was up. And actually it's the fact that I studied Russian as an undergrad that I can approximate the proper pronunciation of that sound and letter. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Next thing for bar nostalgia is just like, all of the indoor smoking that's happening in this episode. You'd love to see it. So, and it's like, it's a, it's a, not a plot point, but it's like a point that gets made in the episode. But the moment Arkady is like looking for cigarettes, I was like, oh my God, indoor smoking feels like the most 80s thing in the entire world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they love their cigs at the, at the resident tour. What can they I say? They love them. They love them. I got a question for you. This is okay. a, does this belong in Bard nostalgia? What's your read on Paige's bedroom decor and particularly the wallpaper in Paige's bedroom? The wallpaper is like, gives me creepy vibes. Like this is not for the Jennings house, but instead like should be in like a remake of the craft. That's like, <laughs> got like 1950s throwbacks to it. Like it feels older than the eighties. I, I, that makes a lot of sense. I think I gave the comp, which of course Danielle is unable to connect to on a personal level of Mad Men. It feels giving me Mad Men vibes. Like Peggy, (laughs) Peggy maybe had similar wallpaper at some point in her life, you know? Yeah. It's, it's out of place, right? So maybe it it doesn't belong in Bard Nostalgia for the unremembered eighties, but perhaps like, like a few episodes ago, Bard Nostalgia of the unremembered sixties. Maybe. It is cool wallpaper though. I would not be opposed to having that wallpaper up in my own dwelling. It's really dark. It's dark. So you gotta figure out a room that's got enough light to handle it. But yeah. But you know. Decor tips from not quite great books. That's why you come here. We'll take it. Okay. So something else that like this is such a throwaway, but like Sandy's self help journey, it's like a little too much for me. Yeah, because we've gotten the, like, various seminars and stuff she's been going to previously on this season. Then we get two things that she is doing this particular uh, episode. First, soul retrieval. I couldn't. I was like, I might have to turn this off. (laughs) Yeah. um, So there's, there's some woo that's happening. And secondly is Est, which I take it was a prominent self-help movement in the oh. 70s and 80s. So I had to look this up. It stands for Erhard Seminars Training. Okay. Sounds a little culty to me, let's be honest. Not into it. No, thank you. Um, the soul retrieval, the like, oh, it's like how you find yourself. That's drawing. It's like, just draw. You want to draw? You want to you want to draw and like get in touch with yourself? Then Then do it. But like, does your FBI agent husband, who you are not connected to in any way, like, do you think that's going to, like, do any good for you? I don't know. Just, like, ugh, it just made me frustrated. Well, sorry to break it to you. Not the last time Sandy will bring up past on uh, the Americans. <laughs> I know. Okay, the last thing that – the last, like, set of things that I want to bring up in Bar Nostalgia is, like, the Martha's apartment. And I – we've been in Martha's apartment a number of times Many before. Times. But I had never quite realized that, like, she doesn't have a full refrigerator. Like, yeah. like she has, like, 
the refrigerator I had in my college dorm room. That's not a refrigerator for a grown woman. It's barely bigger than that. And, like, she has a decently well-appointed, like, middle-class, upper-middle-class apartment otherwise. And, like, with the wine, with, like, conversations she's had with Philip, like, she likes bougie things. Totally. Right? And And same, like... You know, <laughs> that's not I to. Don't, I don't not know to, what you're talking about. That's not to. That's You're you're way less bougie than I am, Danielle. Except that, like, I am aggressively devoted to Peloton, which is, <laughs> <laughs> I think, the bougiest thing about me is the fact that I own a Peloton bike. Uh, uh handed down Peloton. A handed bike, down. Right? Peloton so, like bike you went out I and like gave them like here Peloton take twenty five hundred dollars or whatever. No, I did not do that, but I'm, like, more than happy to, like, have, use, and I believe when I got on this call, I was like, congratulate me for getting to my 300 today. So. Yeah, it's true. Danielle did ask me to biopoliticize her uh, and celebrate it. Oh, my God. So there's um, also one last gloss moment, of, or a couple more gloss moments of the Martha-Jennifer-slash-Elizabeth interaction. Yeah. One is Elizabeth coming up, or Elizabeth-Jennifer coming up with the phrase, like, sorry to be or not to be a Betty Budinsky. I don't think she came up with it. That was, like, a thing people said. Okay. This is not the first time I've ever heard that, but it was, like, like so 80s of this episode, like, is is that phrase yeah and it's it, that's a good point that's important to differentiate that so the americans fan wiki points out that this is perhaps a callback to felicity who used this phrase in one episode of the show felicity i'm pretty sure that that is where i first heard it i was i'm not surprised about that I love Felicity and also did a rewatch over the pandemic. There we go. All right. So I think we have one particularly 80s note to end on as we discuss the Martha Uh, Elizabeth apartment situation. Elizabeth's Jennifer wig is like perhaps the most 80s of all of her wigs. It's like, it's like the er 80s wig. Yeah. Not much more to add. Uh, Yeah. No (laughs) notes. Okay, let's get into minor character of the week. Let's do. I I turn this over to you to. It's going to surprise zero listeners at this point. Zero listeners. Who our minor character, and particularly Danielle's minor character. Is. My minor character of the week, and I'm usually I'm like, oh, I have to like think about who might be. Literally, in watching this episode, I was like, Mossad Agent Yossi, Cliff Simon is the actor that plays him. Minor character of the week. We're not going to see him again. At least I'm pretty confident about that. Give me a character that <coughs> that is in the Mossad is like the most Danielle Catnip thing that a show could do in the entire world. Yeah. Um, a perhaps questionable character judgment, but I'm not going to hold it against you. It's fine. I'll take it. I'll take it. John, how did you feel about Yossi? Yossi's a wonderful character for all the reasons that we identified for drunkenly or fake drunkenly singing Kenny Rogers. On a moment's notice, he's like incredibly skilled, obviously, at his job, better than Stan is at his job, even though he got caught. Absolutely. But also just the way he is making fun or poking at Philip, not only in the more serious ways we've identified, but also some of the other ones, right? At one point he tells Philip that, oh, my family lives on a kibbutz and that's where communism actually works. Great, great read, Yossi. One, possibly true. Though not all kibbutzes are communist. Some (laughs) of them are socialist. It's like a whole thing. There are full youth movements that are either communist or socialist coming out of Israel. 
Um, though we'll go with Yossi about his communist kibbutz. But like, listen, I think that that's probably right. And in fact, there are political theorists that make a version of this argument, right? Like Carol Pateman makes a version of this argument that like the, the engagement on the kibbutz is like then that in the Soviet Union. And I would... Yeah, that's like a very Carol Payton, like almost Arendtian way to like yeah. read how socialism or communism could work in practice. Yeah, exactly. And um, there's also the way that Yossi says Mr. KGB man, um, yeah. because obviously he doesn't know Philip's name. And so several times throughout the episode, we get that line. And it's a perfect line reading every single one of those times. Perfect line reading, I will also say, also feels very Israeli. <laughs> Like, oh, you, Mr. KGB, man. Uh, like, like, I don't know what to call you, so I'm just going to call you this, like, diminutive, but also, like, very, like, factual thing and make it an insult. There we go. All right. Any more notes on Yossi that you'd like to add? No, but he's so far my favorite minor character of the week. Wow. Surprising no one. Quite the statement. Also not a surprise. Indeed. Not at all. Shall we go to the cave? Let's go to the cave. All right. You're going to take us down. I'll take us down. So we talked about this a little bit before. Baklanov accuses Philip of being like Eichmann. And I think this is a, uh, a good opportunity for us to think about uh, Hannah Arendt's work, Eichmann in Jerusalem, right? Like the titular Eichmann. And so just to pull a little bit of the, the summary from... The Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Written by Majid Yar. <laughs> so Arendt controversially uses the phrase, quote, the banality of evil to characterize Eichmann's actions as a member of the Nazi regime, in particular his role, his role as chief architect and executioner of Hitler's genocidal final solution for the Jewish problem. Her characterization of these actions, so obscene in their nature and consequences, as banal is, is not meant to position them as Arendt, controversially uses the phrase the banality of evil to characterize Eichmann's actions as a member of the Nazi regime, in particular his role as chief architect and executioner of Hitler's genocidal final solution for the Jewish problem. Her characterization of these actions, so obscene in their nature and consequences as banal, is not meant to position them as workaday. Rather, it's meant to contest the prevalent depictions of the Nazis' inexplicable atrocities as having emanated from a malevolent will to do evil, a delight in murder. So basically what we have here is Arendt is is calling out the the way in which Eichmann is, quote unquote, just doing his job. But the, the simple obeying of orders like produces this sort of like this evil on a mass scale. And there seems to be a contradiction in those things, right? If you're just, if you're just following orders, if you're just doing your job, then like you shouldn't, it shouldn't be part of this, this bigger evil, like ethical quandary. And she's saying that like, by not asking questions about the nature of the orders, about the job that one is doing, about one's role as a cog in, in a greater wheel, like that is it, that is an ethical failure. And so I think like when, uh, Baklanov uses the term Eichmann to refer to Philip. He's he's like putting the question to Philip, like, what does your job actually entail? What does it do? What evil are you a part of? And what evil 
and good job, Danielle. Good job. We appreciate that. And encyclopedia philosophy quotation that we that we read from the GDR as well. And I think that's a really useful connection in the way that if I understand Icon and Jerusalem from Arne's perspective, mm-hmm. right, the kind of deeper questions that she's raising are those of like political judgment or political yeah. evaluation or Absolutely. what thought, what thinking is, what imagination yeah. is. And mm-hmm. it's precisely all of these characteristics that she says that Eichmann lacks. Yeah. And that she will then go on to develop like built out theories of all of those faculties or whatever um, over the rest of her career. And so the if we go with Arendt, then... <laughs> When Baklanov makes that accusation against Philip, yeah. it's 100% of the accusation that you just included. And also is this suggestion, this ties into Baklanov's line about Philip is no longer human, yeah. that he's lacking these precisely human faculties of judging, thinking, imagining, perceiving, acting, so on, reasoning, so on and so forth. Absolutely. that he, The fact that he's not questioning or or engaging his faculties of judgment to Baklanov demonstrates that he does not have access to those anymore, yeah. but he's like so brainwashed by the, by his like place in the hierarchy. He doesn't have access to these like distinctly human faculties. Right. And the ironic thing about this of course, is that Philip does have the occasional hesitation. He occasionally yeah. does seem to be engaging in some of the thinking or the judgment Elizabeth is probably more accurately characterized in this way than Philip is in a lot of ways, even if this particular accusation is run up against Philip himself. Yeah. And I mean, the, even in this episode, right. We, that softening or that melting that we talked about a little bit earlier, I think is a moment in which we we see that or at least we are led to 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 contemplate whether or not Philip is going to in the parlance of Arendt that you're invoking here like use his faculties of judgment to make a decision to do something that is perhaps not like in line with the center this this and that right like this episode it's ironic that that Baklanov calls Philip Eichmann at the end of the episode when we have seen him sort of struggle through the the violence and the decisions and the negotiations to lead him to this point. Yeah. And perhaps put a bit of a point on it. There's, and this is, I'm also going to drag in another, I can't believe I'm doing this, theorist to the cave, and that the decisions that are made by the characters in this episode fill it most of all for the reasons you just articulated. Mm-hmm. But there's a way that we could ask this question of Oleg's motivations as well. And that is the, if you do the right things, are you also doing it for the right reasons or for the, for the right motivations? Which is, I think, tied to the thinking judgment question for Arendt is also tied elsewhere Absolutely. to he who shall not be named. And, uh, and, and is part of the ethical interrogations that are happening in this episode. Part of, just to follow this thread for a moment, part of the, the question that gets raised by Baklanov in in invoking Eichmann in demanding the, that the faculties of judgment be engaged is this question of like who decides what is right who decides the content of of morality right yep oh my god I quite, think quite the journey to the cave 
quite the journey to the cave. I think this is the first uh, the first Arendt entry into the cave. If shocking. I'm not Correct. Honestly, and shocking. shocking. Especially because we've had two episodes with producer Amy already. Sure have. Yeah. <laughs> I think we leave Arendt down here, but she can be one of the people who like Just deals with back the puppets. I feel like she's got the puppet. She can like walk around. Okay. Fair enough. It feels like a, a like a less mean way to leave someone in the cave. <laughs> Yeah, that's Danielle saying that, not me. I just want to <laughs> emphasize that for the record and for producing. <laughs> for, right. Well, that's fine. Um, I think that we've come to the end of this episode. I believe we have. I feel very proud of us. Absolutely. Um, so up next, we've got um, the next episode in your feed will be Loki season one, episode six for all time. Always. The that finale of Loki. The finale. It will drop on Tuesday. Thank and then the next- gods of mischief. <laughs> <laughs> As I said to John before we started recording, Yossi really gives off real, like, what makes a Loki a Loki vibes. No. And those of you who are following along with our uh, Loki episodes I'm can no longer enjoy that. I'm of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for just this episode that we have entered this territory. I'm not um, here for the crossover. I love, a, I love a good crossover. That's why I like the MCU. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> So the next episode that will be in your feeds is the season finale of Loki. And then next Thursday, you will get American season two, episode six, Behind the Red Door. Um, And thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, as always, to producer Amy. Thank you to our one or two listeners. Um, And thanks again from us here at Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast. on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon and indirectly producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball. Communicating with Moscow, with the center, blah, blah, blah. Oye barges in and says, you know, gosh, I totally fucked this whole intro up. Let me just start over again. Okay. Is that a word? Yeah. Okay, we have to cut this out.